Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. And as you do, Happy New Year. Trust that this has been a, a great new year for you so far. We're almost 11 hours into it. It's a uh, special day for our church as well. Today, uh, Kent Cloder officially comes on staff to our church. His, this is his first day. So be nice to him. Kent, you're looking pretty good this morning. Do you feel pretty, pretty good? Feeling? Okay, good. It's, uh, it's exciting to have Kent on, on staff and trust it's going to be a fun first week for him. So pray for, for him and his new ministry. It's, it's neat for our church. As hopefully you're there in Luke chapter 12, we're going to be finishing up, Lord willing, Luke chapter 12 this morning. We've been in this chapter for quite a while, and so it's exciting to be able to, to see what God is going to teach us this, this morning through this uh, passage. And if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verses 54, through, and we're going to continue through verse 59. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison? I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning, and let's pray. Father, we're excited about this new year. We're grateful for the things you've done in our, our church and our lives in the last year, in 2011. And as we, we mark this, this new year, as, as Mark prayed earlier, we would ask that you would change us, that as things come up in this, this coming year that wouldn't be what we would hope for or desire, that you would use difficulty in our lives to refine us, to make us more like you, to bring us greater love for you, greater reliance upon you, greater holiness, and greater ability to minister to others. We pray in this passage that we're looking at this morning that teaches us about you and about discerning your will and discerning your love and your guidance for us, give our hearts softness toward your truth. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1900s, at the dawn of the 20th century, the world, the Western world anyway, was fairly confident in modern ideals. There was a belief that knowledge, reason, logic, authoritative voices could solve the world's problems. There was a belief, nearly universal, that it was possible to pursue and know truth and on the basis of our knowledge of truth to solve difficulties, to solve problems. That was in the early 1900s as the 20th century began. Then came World War I. And many people, as they saw the connection between World War I and kind of these modernistic tendencies, believed that many of the modern ideals had resulted in one of the bloodiest conflicts the world had ever known. There was a distrust 
and many of the ideals that had been so important to a modernistic worldview. William Butler Yeats, writing in 1919, wrote a very famous poem entitled The Second Coming. And the first lines may be very familiar to you. You're with this in 1919, and it begins, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. What is Yates saying? That image there of a falcon having ever-widening arcs around that, that falconer means that the, the falcon is going beyond that point where he can hear the authoritative voice at the center. The falcon can no longer hear that authoritative voice of the falconer. And Yates says the, the center cannot hold. That center authority no longer can hold. And when there's no longer that center of authority, what happens? Things fall apart. My grandfather in his backyard built kind of this playground, and one of the pieces of equipment on that playground, I, I may have mentioned it before, it was kind of like this seesaw, but it was a really cool seesaw because there at the center, not only could it pivot up and down, it could also turn around in a circle. So it was kind of like a cross between a, a seesaw and a merry-go-round, and you could sit there on the edges of that of that seesaw and go up and down, and then someone in the middle could kind of turn you around, and then you're, you're feeling this, this force against yourself as you're going around the, the edge, and it works. Why does it work? Because there's this, this central point, and that central point holds, and so everything else works. Now, if there's no central point, what happens? You're just kind of sitting there on a piece of board in the middle of a yard rolling around. A different kind of fun, I suppose. Yeats says, look, there's, there's no center in this, this world. Anarchy is descending upon the world. And Yeats is prophetic because nearly 100 years later, that's the world we find ourselves in in many ways, right? A world that views knowledge with suspicion, that views authoritative voices with suspicion. We've entered what some call the, the postmodern world. A world that looks at meta-narratives, at great truth statements, overarching truth claims with, with disdain and disbelief. In fact, let me give you a little bit of an imaginary scenario this morning. Let's imagine that there is a, a young person in our church who's getting ready to graduate high school this year, and let's call this young person Zachary. Zach has grown up in a Christian home He's had a mom and a dad who both love the Lord and have taught Zach certain things about God and certain things about the Bible, about how to view morality. And Zach has entered, he entered his high school years believing certain things about right and wrong and about God's Word and about authority in his life. And then over the last four years, some, some interesting things have happened to Zach that have, that have caused his horizons to be expanded somewhat, if you will. For example, Zach has, has been around people in his high school who believe really different things about the nature of reality. He has friends at school who don't believe the same things he believes about God, that don't believe the same things that he believes about a lot of different things. In fact, some of Zach's friends at school have told him, you know, we are practicing a, a different lifestyle than perhaps you would have believed was right. 
Some of Zach's friends are engaged in inappropriate physical relationships with people that they're dating. Uh, some people in, in Zach's life are, are engaged in practicing homosexuality, and, and he looks at these people that are involved in these things, and they're good people. He enjoys spending time with them. You see, Zach had always had this belief. He, his parents had told him about what God believed about rightness and wrongness, and so Zach had kind of believed that a person that, that walked the way that God was told a person to walk, kind of walked on this road, and if a person got off that road, they, you know, terrible things happened to them. And he looks at the people that are doing things that he thought were wrong, that were against what God said to do, and, like, they seem pretty happy. They didn't grow horns in a tail or something. In fact, the people that are engaged in some things that he thought were wrong are some of the most moral people that he knows, some of the people that he enjoys spending time with the most. He's had some family members over the last few years. His, his parents had told him certain things about a role of a husband and a role of a wife in a marriage relationship and about what marriage meant. And he's had some family members that have gotten divorced over the last four years. And they seem happier now than they were in the marriage that they had been in before. And he, and he wonders about that. He questions his beliefs about rightness and wrongness and morality and immorality. He's, in, he's immersed in a culture, an entertainment culture, that celebrates some of the lifestyles that his parents had told him were wrong. And something else very interesting takes place as Zach has conversations with people that are engaged in lifestyles that he thought were wrong. They still tell him, hey, look, we love God too. And the things you believed about God's word aren't necessarily the case. I love God, but I come to God's word and find a different conclusion than you do about morality, about rightness or wrongness of certain types of, of actions and conduct. And really, really, knowledge is, is kind of suspect in Zach's world, the postmodern world. And this is the question Zach has before him, and, and really this is a question that the young people in our church have before them, the, the question that all of us have before us. Zach, as he get ready to enter the adult world, as you get ready to go into college and beyond, Zach has a very important question, question facing him. The question is, can the center hold? Can that center hold? Can there still be authoritative voices that, that speak into the rightness and wrongness of, of morality, the rightness and wrongness of religion, the, the rightness or wrongness of, of how to live one's life? Or, or is the center gone? Is there no longer anything holding things together? Does each person by themselves need to determine what's right and wrong? In fact, is rightness and wrongness even knowable in an absolute confident, in a sense of, of confidence? And Zach wonders about that. He wonders whether or not that authoritative voice will be able to still be heard. Is he going to be like the, the falcon that has gone beyond the reach of the falconer? And frankly, it scares him a little bit. He wonders whether or not the worldview that he's had about rightness, wrongness, religion is antiquated whether it's capable of meeting the intellectual demands of a wider world, 
or whether his worldview was so shaped by his parents and their antiquated views of the culture wars and all those things that they dealt with that it can't transfer into the more complex world that he is entering. That's a real question that our young people are facing, and it's a real question that those of us who are older face as well. Is rightness and wrongness, is is understanding of God a, a knowable thing? Is knowledge possible? Or is knowledge, rightness and wrongness, kind of an individual decision that each person needs to make for themselves? I want you to look again at your text, Luke chapter 12, and, and what we're going to see as we look at, look at Luke chapter 12 is that knowledge is possible, that Jesus is going to call people to know truths about himself and then to act upon, him, upon that knowledge. What we're talking about this morning is the possibility and practice of discernment, the possibility and practice of knowing what is wrong and what is right and acting upon that knowledge. Here's kind of the main statement that I want you to think about with me this morning as we look at Luke chapter 12, verses 54 through verse 59. Know what God wants you to do, and then do it. (laughs) Know what God wants you to do, and then do it. We're going to first of all look at this first part of the phrase, know what God wants you to do. And so let's first look at this first part of the phrase, know what God wants you to do, from verses 54 through verse 56. Jesus says this in verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? What is Jesus saying here? Now, remember the context of chapter 12. Jesus has been addressing these crowds. We saw this at the very beginning of chapter 12. These crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They're surrounding him. And Jesus is sometimes, in Luke chapter 12, talking to the crowds at large, and sometimes he's talking just to his disciples, those who are closer to him. Right now, he's turning his attention to the larger crowds. And remember what he's just been talking about. He's been talking to the crowds about being aware. He's been talking about being aware of the return of the master. And as you anticipate the return of the master, you're supposed to be conducting yourselves in a certain way, aware of Christ's return and doing what he wants you to do. As you wait for the master's return and do what he wants you to do while waiting, that sometimes, we've just seen in Luke chapter 12, going to cause tension between you and others. The whole world, in fact, can be divided into two groups, those who are eagerly anticipating the return of their master and those who refuse to recognize the authority of Christ in their lives. And so now he comes to verse 54, and he says this. He says to the crowds, this is a larger group, he says uh, kind of two illustrations from the weather. He goes, first of all, when you see a cloud rise in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. Jesus says, look, whenever you look to the west, and out to the west would have been the Mediterranean Sea, and whenever you see this cloud rising, forming over the Mediterranean Sea and coming toward you, you reach a conclusion, and you say at once, ah, it's going to rain, and what happens? Lo and behold, it rains. You make an observation about the physical world, and you reach a conclusion based upon that observation, and you are correct. It's possible for you to make 
a knowledgeable statement about the physical world around you. He gives another illustration. Verse 55. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. In other words, when that south wind comes up across the desert and you feel that southern wind coming, you know it's going to be a very hot, scorching day, and surprise of surprises, it happens. You see a cloud, you make an immediate conclusion, there's going to be rain, it happens, you feel this scorching heat, or you feel this heat coming from the south, you know it's going to be a scorching hot day, and that's what happens as well. You make observations about the physical world, you reach conclusions based upon those observations, and you have confidence in those conclusions. Knowledge is possible. When I was in Texas recently for over the summer, I sometimes in the, it was during the middle of one of Texas uh, one of the most uh, hot summers in Texas history. And no matter how early I woke up in the morning to, to go for a run or something, I'd I'd walk out those those front doors and feel that just that like furnace like heat. And it didn't take me a long time to say, you know what, it's going to be a hot day. I could reach a pretty confident conclusion walking out the door that it was going to be a very hot, warm day. You and I, whenever we walk outside and see dark clouds and feel the wind and hear the thunder, can reach a conclusion. Ah, a thunderstorm is coming. This past week, uh, we watched a, a movie with some friends, and this movie had some very me- melodramatic moments, and there'd be like moments where the, the music got in a certain way, ah, they're about to make some big revelation, or there's going to be some melodramatic statement. Uh, one character had like uh, their own theme music, and so when you heard that music, you knew that character was about to enter the stage, and, or uh, the stage of the movie, and I kind of thought, man, it'd be really cool, Mike, if Mike's in here, if, if I could get some theme music. And that way, every time this theme music played, people would know, oh, Daniel is coming. Um, You hear certain things, you know certain things are going to happen in a movie, and you you make these conclusions, and you're generally right. This knowledge is possible. Now, here's Jesus' point, verse verse 56. You hypocrites, You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Look, you guys are hypocrites. You're acting in a way that is inconsistent. You feel confident in looking at the physical world around you and saying, ah, because this is taking place, I know what's about to happen. And yet, in a spiritual world, you are purposefully ignorant. What Jesus is describing here is not a new phenomenon, and here's what I want you to really understand as we think about our our current cultural context. You and I currently live in a culture that we can describe as as postmodern, and a postmodern world says, boy, I can't know things, and therefore, when I read things that God has said about morality, about how to approach him, about how to have a relationship with him, I can't know for sure that that's true. I can make my individual claims for myself or beliefs, but I can't make universal truth statements. What we're doing in our culture today is not something new. Throughout human history, God has revealed his will for people, and people throughout human history have said, I don't really know what you want, God. 
We're talking here, first of all, about this idea of knowing what God wants you to do here in verses 54 through 56. We're talking about the possibility of discernment, the possibility of knowing, of having confidence in God's revelation. And we live in a culture that denies that it's possible to know what God wants you to do. And what I want you to see is that's not a new or unique phenomenon. For example, we're going to go through several, we're going to actually spend quite a bit of time on this first idea. In the book of Genesis, what happens at the very beginning? What does the serpent tell Eve? Look, you don't know for sure what God wants here. Cain, as he approaches God, feigns ignorance regarding how God should be worshipped. In the book of Proverbs, as, as the, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon talks to his son about wisdom and understanding. What does he say? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, he says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? Here's the Daniel Bennett translation. Listen up. Hey, stupid people, how long will you enjoy being stupid spiritually? It's a theological word there. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? How long will fools hate knowledge? Verse 29 of Proverbs chapter 1 says, They hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They had this opportunity to understand what God wanted, what he desired, how to know him, and they refused to, to heed it. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 9 Isaiah gives us a a, a great passage for a a postmodern culture. In Isaiah's day, the people were denying their ability to understand God's truth as well. And and listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 29. Actually, I'll start in verse 10. It says, The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So because of Israel's willful disobedience to God, there had been this this time where, where God has allowed them to not know things. Verse 11, And the vision of all this, The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, it's sealed. In other words, God had spiritually closed their hearts, and so now the the vision, God's revelation is given to them. They're like, ah, I can't open it, it has a seal on it. He says, and when they give you the book, when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, ah, I can't read. God's revelation comes to a person in a written form, they go, oh, I, I can't read, I can't know what God wants. You see what I'm saying? The phenomenon of God revealing himself to us and a culture responding, I I can't understand it. It's not new. It's not new. Verse 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In other words, Isaiah is talking to a culture here that has been given God's revelation. They've looked at God's revelation and gone, oh, I, I can't read. But boy, do I love God. I love, and God said, look, you're drawing, your, your mouths are saying one thing, but your heart is far from me. You're claiming to have a love for me, but in reality, you're rejecting my revelation to you. 
Let me show you another great passage. Uh, turn over, if you're in Luke still, turn over to the be- beginning of your New Testament and then go a little bit further to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And here in the book of Malachi, I believe we have the perfect text, really, for a culture that denies their ability to know God and yet claims to love God. Malachi is a book that could have been written expressly to our culture. It begins, Malachi chapter 1, with God declaring his love for the people of Israel. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Throughout the book of Malachi, the people are going to respond to God's declarative statements with questions like, I don't understand. I'm ignorant. God says, look, I've loved you. I've loved you. I've shown my love to you. And the people go, huh? You love us? I didn't know that. How have you loved us? And God reminds them of, of look, look, well, look what happened to Jacob and look what happened to Esau. Esau's descendants have been, have been scattered around, and yet Jacob's descendants have been brought back into, their, into this land. Your own eyes, verse 5, shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. goes on and talks about, about uh, how they've despised his name. Verse 6, they say, But how have we despised your name? We don't understand that, God. Have, have we offended you? What's wrong? You seem kind of up, uptight, God. It goes on, talking about, and God talks about ways that they've despised his name, failed to glorify him. Then look as we get to chapter 2 of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 2, and again, I think this is a great illustration of a culture that knows what God desires them to do and yet refuses to do that and then feigns ignorance. Look at what happens in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. It says, here's a second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, look, God, please accept us. Why, are you, why, are you, why aren't you accepting us, God? Why are you so displeased with us, God? We don't get it. Verse 14, why does he not? What, what, what's God's deal? And listen to what, what Malachi says, what God says through Malachi. Again, this could have been written to us in our culture today. It could Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Look, you understood what God's purpose was from the beginning, to have a a man and a woman come together and to have this one flesh relationship. And this one flesh relationship was to be a, there's a theological purpose behind it. God did this. God made them one, verse 15. He was seeking these these godly offspring. This is what God's revealed will to you was. And what did the people do? The people rejected God's purposes for marriage and uh, had abandoned the wife of their youth. Now, they've, they've done that. They've done something that was in direct disobedience to God's revealed will. And they said, we didn't know. Wow, why didn't you let us know, God? Sorry about that. And then here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. 
Verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. You have, wearied the word, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how? How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Do you see the parallel with our own culture today? Our own culture receives God's word, and they ignore what God's word says concerning marriage, concerning the relationship between a husband and a wife, concerning how we should conduct ourselves morally, concerning how we should conduct ourselves in relationship to worship. They they reject that, and then they say, God, what's what's the deal? And furthermore, they say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. I may reject God's purposes for me concerning how to worship him, but God and I are good. I may reject God's purposes for me concerning what I'm supposed to do with the wife of my youth, but God and I are good. God delights in me. Really? You have wearied the Lord with your words. Like the people in Malachi's day, we live in a culture that rejects God's revelation, says we can't know what he wants, and then lives in a way that's contrary to what he says he wants us to do. We see the same thing in Jesus' day, don't we? Jesus, throughout his ministry, will call people to account for not knowing things. You go, if you're in the book of Malachi, you go one book over the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 12, we have a, one of the many examples of Jesus questioning people's lack of understanding. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking to them about the Sabbath. And Now, here's, here's another thing, guys. The people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, these, these uh, lawyers and Pharisees and scribes, they were sure that they were right. They lived in a culture where they had re- rejected a lot of God's clear revelation, but they had these other additional revelations, this other cultural understanding of what God wanted them to do, and they were confident, they were sure that they were right, and yet, sadly, they were wrong. In verse chapter 12, Jesus is talking with them about their wrong understanding of the Sabbath. They had enacted all these rules and regulations concerning the Sabbath. They had missed the big picture. In verse 5, Jesus says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You didn't understand what God's word said, and God, Jesus holds the Pharisees accountable for their lack of understanding. Matthew chapter 19, he does another thing similar to that. He's talking with them about divorce, and he asks them in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. They ask him, Why did Moses allow a certificate of divorce? He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. What's the point? What's the point? The point is simply this. There's nothing unique, young people. There's nothing unique, older people, about living in a culture in which people deny that they can understand and know what God wants them to do. 
we think we've somehow entered this, this new age, where this postmodern age, and postmodernism is the, this new thing. And, and because we live in this postmodern age where we're, uh, in, where we're uh, understanding more about what we don't understand, that we've, we've ushered in this, this new world, we haven't. We haven't. It's just simply a new way, if you even want to call it new way, to deny old truths. It's a continued act of rebellion and another way to say, I can't know what God wants me to do. D.A. Carson, in his book, uh, Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church, talks about the similarities between postmodernism and modernism. He says, like modernism... Postmoderns begin with, with I, with me, what, what I believe. He says some prefer to treat postmodernism as a form of late modernism or even ultra modernism. They both, postmodern rejects foundations, accepts nothing as self evident. Things are only self evident within given culture. It's just another example of humanity's desire to deny God's clear revelation. Here's some thoughts for application, kind of four thoughts for application here as we think about, first of all, knowing what God wants you to do, that the possibility of discernment. The first application from verses 54 through 56 here is, first of all, to be aware of the, the times and culture in which you're immersed. The people in Jesus' day had no conception that they were immersed in a culture that, that had failed to truly capture reality. They had enacted all these rules and regulations, these uh, observations for, for, for the Sabbath, these regulations for how they were supposed to wash their hands. They had no conception that, that this reality in which they lived was, was a lie, was, was not true. I can remember, maybe some of you have felt this way too, but I can remember being young, and uh, really young, and wondering whether or not what I thought was reality was actually reality. Like I wondered... Maybe, um, maybe like, I'm, I'm part of this experiment, and uh, my parents and everyone is involved in this elaborate experiment, and people are watching me all the time, and they're just seeing how I react to different things. Yeah, I'm paranoid about a lot of things. I've, I've grown out of some of that. And then I watched that movie, The, the Truman Show. I don't know if you remember the movie, The Truman Show, and I thought, that's me. I think that I'm in a movie, and people are watching me all the time. Or there's, you know, the movie The Matrix where they find out that the reality they thought was reality wasn't really reality. And so th this, the first thing that a person needs to really understand is well, you need to be aware of the culture that you're immersed in. And sometimes we're so immersed in this culture that the things that our culture says don't even sound that odd or that strange or that weird to us. And so everyone around us believes certain things about, about sexuality, and so we believe those things about sexuality. And it's, it's weird to even question those things. Know the culture, know the culture, and be aware of the culture in which you've been immersed. Be aware of the times and culture you're immersed in. Secondly, believe that God has revealed how to live in his word. Believe that scripture is God's revelation, and in God's word, he's revealed how he desires you to live. What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say? It tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for training, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped, prepared for every good work. 
So understand the culture in which you've been immersed in, its weaknesses, its strengths, and understand that God has given you his word to show you how to live. And then number three, I believe this is very important. I believe this is very important. Read God's word to understand how to live in your culture, not the other way around. Don't read your culture in order to understand the Bible. Read your Bible in order to understand your culture and how to live in it. It's very interesting how blinded we are by our culture. You know, I did a little experiment uh, this week because I was thinking about this idea and how it's hard for us to understand how much we are part of our culture, our postmodern culture, and how we view reality or suspicion toward knowledge is so shaped by the, the shows we watch or what we believe about sexuality or what we believe about religion is, is, or pluralism is so shaped by, by what other people around us believe. So what I did is this. I, I have these, these books on my shelf of writers from the first couple centuries of the church, and so at random, I pulled off a book and it, was, uh, it turned out to be the writings of Tertullian, who, was, who wrote around the 200 A.D. And I just kind of opened at random to a section and to see what he was talking about. And he was talking to Christians in this writing that I happened upon. And what he was saying was this. He said, look, a lot of you are saying that the Scripture doesn't expressly forbid what you're doing. And so you're engaged in this activity of, of entertainment, and you don't see anything wrong with it. And he goes, but here's why I believe it's wrong. And he talks to them about why he believes it's wrong. Now, you know what the entertainment was? It was the gladiator games. And these people were so immersed in their culture, they had no problem going to this, people who claim the name Christian, of going to gladiator games where, where people were killing each other or where, where, where people were being killed. They were so immersed in a bloodthirsty culture, they didn't have the ability to take off the blinders and see how wrong that culture was. And Tertullian is saying, are you, are you kidding me? Look, don't look at Scripture through your culture's blinders and say, well, the Bible doesn't mention gladiator games, so I can't know for sure that that's wrong. Look at what God's Word says and then live your life in light of God's Word, not the other way around. Understand your culture. Understand its weaknesses and its strengths. Believe that God has revealed how to live in his word. Then thirdly, read, read scripture and understand your culture in light of it. And then finally, what I would encourage you with as we think of applying this truth is to think deep thoughts about God and his will. And ask yourself hard questions that may challenge your own assumptions or your culture's assumptions about rightness or wrongness. But what Jesus is saying here is that discernment is possible. Knowledge is possible. That brings us to the next section. Know what God wants you to do, and then what? Do it. Here's what he says in verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Now, Jesus uses illustrations like this several times in Scripture. Paul uses an illustration similar to this elsewhere in Scripture. And what Jesus is saying here, based upon the context, is this. I've warned you about the coming of 
the master. And I've warned you that every person is going to be recompensed based upon how they are prepared or how they are unprepared. And it would behoove you to look around and discern the times. And if, instead of saying, boy, we have no idea what's going on here in our culture. We have no idea what God's will is. We have no idea if, if, if God is going to recompense us. To look around at the times, discern the times, know the times, and say, ah, I am living at a moment in time where I have the ability to turn and repent and make sure that I have reconciled myself to God. And Jesus is saying, because you have this ability right now, a wise person will settle. It says in this illustration, you know that if you were being brought by an accuser before the magistrate and you were clearly wrong, the judge is going to enact a harsh penalty upon you. It would behoove you to do everything you can to stay out of prison because you'll remain in prison until the last penny, the very tiniest amount of, uh, of, of the dollar can be paid, that the tiniest uh, financial amount can be paid, must be paid before you can be released from, from prison. Right now, Jesus says, you have the opportunity to practice discernment to live in a way that is right before God, before, these, this, the, before the coming judgment, and live in light of seeking God's forgiveness. Do what is right. Discern what is right. Uh, Tim Challies has wrote a book called, Discern, um, called the, the Spiritual Discipline of Discernment, and he defines discernment this way. He says, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Discernment, the ability to live in a way that distinguishes right from wrong, is an example of spiritual maturity. In fact, let me read a passage from Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, we encounter people in the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews, who are kind of proud of their ignorance, perhaps. And the writer of Hebrews has been talking to them about some very complicated spiritual things. And it's like he gets to this point, and he wants to keep on talking to them about deep spiritual truths, and he says this. He says, about this, we have much to say. In other words, I want to keep on writing and, and tell you more, but there's a problem it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the, world of right, in, in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You and I should be growing in our ability to distinguish right from wrong. Richard Phillips, writing on this text, says this, the recipients of this letter were like many Christians today who think that theology is a waste of time. What is important, they say, is that we just get along with each other. Then they cite passages commending a childlike faith as if that were the same thing as a childish faith, that is, one who is indifferent to 
or ignorant of the Word of God. You and I are called by God to come to His Word and know truth. And as we know truth, we are called to act upon the truth that we know and to gain in our ability to distinguish right from wrong, truth from error. We are to know what God wants us to do and then do it. At the beginning of our time, we read that poem by Yeats, in which Yeats asked, can the center hold? Things fall apart that the center cannot hold. And we talked about Zach. You know, there were a lot of things about the modern world that were wrong. I've talked about the postmodern world and how the postmodern world denies its ability to know what God wants them to do. The modern world did the same thing, didn't it? The modern world, with its logic and its reason and with its, its authoritative knowledges, had people come out and say, uh, we can't understand Scripture and, and the Bible is, is, is not, uh, the form that we have the Bible in now is, is not its, its real form and people have made redactions and edited and so we can't be confident. And they, they, through reason and through logic, they undermined our ability to be confident in God's Word. The postmodern world also came out. And the postmodern world corrected some of the, the problems of the modern world. Say, look, you, you authoritative voices think you know everything. You know nothing. You're making these confident assertions on, these, on this faulty logic, and, and we're very suspicious of your authoritative voice. And so the postmodern rejected some of the excesses of modernism, right? But like Yates said, the modern was replaced with mere anarchy and a new way of rejecting the authority of God's Word. You know what I hope happens to a young man like Zach, what my hope is for Zach? My hope is that a, a young man like Zach would, would look at what his parents have told him about reality and take it to God's Word. And maybe Zach, as he goes to God's Word and talks and looks at what God's Word says about uh, what his parents have taught him, he, he may say, you know what, some of the things my parents said some of the things that my parents really got worked up about, maybe they weren't as important as they thought they were. And then I'll come to other things and I'll say, boy, the, the things my parents told me here were spot on. And my, hopefully Zach's conclusion would be this, look, my, what determines right and wrong for me isn't going to be what my culture believes. So even if all my friends believe that, that marriage is some temporary state, that, that a person can enter or leave at will, even if all my friends believe that, that marriage isn't between a, a man and a woman, a marriage can be between any two people any, any, or whatever, marriage isn't uh, something that God defines, it's something we define for ourselves, even if my, my friends believe something about the nature of God uh, and, and, his, and his creation, even if my friends, whatever my friends believe isn't going to be the determiner of what I believe. And I'm going to, to look very carefully at my culture and realize that large groups of people can be wrong about things. And I'm going to place my confidence and my trust in what God has revealed to me, knowing, knowing that I must know what God wants me to do and then do it. That right now, Zach says, I live at a time where God has permitted me to repent.
to turn in faith to him. And my prayer for each of us today, as I've been thinking about this text, was, would be that you and I would grow in our love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would look at the times in which we live and say, look, I, I know that I live in a time that denies the reality of knowledge in many ways, and yet my love for Jesus Christ tells me that he is the authoritative voice in my life. He is the center about, upon which I can base my life. He is the center that holds. He is the cornerstone that is my foundation. And my heart's desire and purpose and passion is to live in a way that worships him. And he's revealed how I can worship him in his word. And I'm going to turn to his word so that I can worship him more fully and passionately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revealed will to us. We can have confidence in your desire for us. And those things that we can't know for certain, we can have confidence that we have freedom in our worship of you. God, give us the ability to know you. Allow us not to uh, seek out alternatives to you, but to place our full and complete confidence in you, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.